Right? Can you believe we're less than two weeks away from Christmas and it's 60 some degrees outside? It's incredible. Yeah, like I'm, I am pumped up about Christmas. I feel like I've got the, Becky the perfect gift. And so I've been looking and looking and looking and trying to think of something and I was just coming up short. And then I saw this commercial on TV and I was like, that's it. And uh, so I'm, it'll be interesting to see whether she agrees with me because um, I've thought I had the perfect gift before. We're also excited today to start a Christmas series. Looking forward to the next couple of weeks. Pastor Kevin will be back teaching next Sunday morning and then and, and Christmas Eve and the Sunday after that. So once you'll be out inviting people, you know, hopefully uh, using those you've been gifted cards, grab some of those and plan on being back with us and jumping in on all that's going on the next couple of weeks. Really looking forward to what God's got for us as a church. I saw something the other week that I felt like was really uh, sort of important for Christmas. It, the tie-in may not... Uh, be so obvious, but actually, I think as I as you look further into it, it has a lot to do with Christmas. And you probably saw it um, after those uh, tragic shootings in California. The the tabloid heading from the New York Daily News said, "God isn't fixing this." I read that and I thought, "What? You know, what do you mean God isn't fixing this?" And here's what hit me. Here we were at that time, just a few weeks before Christmas, and whoever wrote that, and anybody agreeing with them, will, will probably be celebrating Christmas, and yet, ironically, they don't seem to have a clue about what it's all about. And I know they don't have a clue because, first of all, what was written is factually wrong. God is fixing this, and I know the first question is, well, how, how's that, how can you say that? You know, this, we're, we're in a mess, and it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. How can you say God's fixing this? Well, we'll be looking at that in, the, in, in, the, in just a bit here in the rest of the message. But the other thing is they're completely wrong about what the Bible teaches about who God is, what he's like, and how he responds to his people. See, their intent in, in, in writing a headline like that is to ridicule those who believe. But all they're doing is showing their lack of understanding of what we actually accept as truth. They're assuming that we believe that because we pray about something, God will automatically do what we ask. And if he doesn't do what we ask, then they act like, well, that's proof. And see, God doesn't really exist. Like we think of that God is some giant genie in the sky just wanting to fulfill our every wish. Well, they've got the wrong premise in the first place. That's not our thinking. And it's not biblical teaching. They act like we think that God will take all our problems away. No. We don't think that at all. Jesus told us in John 16, he says, in this world you're going to have tribulation. It's not going away. We know that. And the fact that they don't go away doesn't provide those who want to challenge our faith with any proof at all to argue that God doesn't exist. But the part that really ties into Christmas and all this is the fact that God, I believe, is fixing this. He is. This messed up world with all of its killing and its disease and its death, its suffering, its struggle, its hatred, all that's going on. Not only is God fixing it, but he's been fixing it since before time began. See, there's been a plan in place to fix it. And all through time, God's been working the plan that will ultimately fix it all. And that plan really all settles around one word. It's an important word for those of us who are followers of Christ, who have made that decision to trust him. This word is so important to us. It's the word redeem. 
redeeming is all about God's work of getting man and creation out of this mess and back to the way God created us, taking us from where we are in this messed up world and fixing it. And God has been working his plan to redeem man and creation from the very beginning when he created man and gave him free will. And we took that free will and we went our own way. We decided to go do our own thing. We purposely, deliberately stepped away from God in disobedience. And that's where all the mess came from, right? came from us, not from him. But God, knowing that we would cause all this, knowing that we would step away, still, before the time of creation, planned to redeem us. Ephesians 1.4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And if you're a follower of Christ, this is great news. What a God we serve. Because of his love for us, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He knew you. He knew me. He knew us. And he loved us. And he made a plan to redeem us before anything was made. It was his plan to restore us to a relationship with him. And he began working his plan. He told Satan at the beginning, right after Adam sinned, about how the fix would happen. In Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. And what he's talking about there is how he's going to fix this. And he's, he's doing that with what he calls the seed. He later talks about the same thing with Abraham in Genesis 22, 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See, there's just been this promise of a seed. And then if you watch carefully throughout the whole Old Testament, down through the centuries, God's always working the plan to fix this world, always protecting that promise that he made. That one day an answer would come of this blessing and provision for his people. And he made it clear that this plan would all run through this seed. And it becomes clear as he's talking about that, that you realize he's talking about a person. The person the Jewish people will look forward to as the Messiah. And God kept working the plan. He told us specific details about this person and what his life would be like. He told us exactly where he would be born 700 years before it happened. 700 years before it happened, the prophet Micah wrote in Micah 5.2, he said, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That's amazing. 700 years before Jesus is born, Bethlehem, this little hole in the road, no place. Bethlehem is named as a place where it's going to happen. And, and then it worked because God was working the plan to fix this. He told us how Jesus would miraculously be born, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. It's a miraculous thing. You know, it doesn't happen very often, does it? A virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel, born of a virgin. He said, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be a sign to you. And what do you know? It happened. He told us that the Messiah, what he would be like in Isaiah 9, 6. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. See, the focus of the whole plan is on this child who would come. So Christmas is central to the plan of fixing all of this and of redeeming us. The story of how he had come as a baby in a manger and then how he would live without sin. And finally, God, still working the plan, described for us how the Messiah would later suffer and die. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. If you're reading those verses, it's like, boy, you're, it's like you're standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at him, watching him, watching him die. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's, he's not... We did not esteem him. The people there who were looking up at him, these, they're looking and thinking, who is this guy that is dying like this? In fact, they esteemed him, how? Smitten of God. They're looking at him and they're making this judgment. Why is this guy going through this? Why is he dying like this? Well, it's because he must have done something wrong. God's doing this to him. But Isaiah points out, he was, it wasn't because of what God was doing for him. We may have made that judgment, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. It, he had done nothing wrong. He didn't deserve to die like that, but it was for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And that the chastening and the scourging that he received, that was ours as well. It's an amazing, amazing description of what he went through for us. And then on Psalm 22, David, a thousand years before Jesus, writes these words. And it's like we hear the words of Jesus describing himself on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's an awesome description that fits carefully into a crucifixion, which, by the way, hadn't been invented yet by men for another 500 years. But you read those verses, and it's, it's, it's clearly describing what Jesus experienced on the cross. We come into the New Testament and we see that his death occurred just like we had been told, his death. His death was the, the hinge for the whole plan to fix this. It's the way that God intended to bring about redemption. When a sinless Jesus would take our penalty and stand as our substitute, paying the price for our sin that we could never pay. 
Other civilizations had begun to use crucifixion, but it was the Romans who had perfected it. It was a punishment designed to maximize pain and suffering. It wasn't about killing somebody. It was about killing somebody in a really horrible way. Somebody was crucified. It suffered the maximum amount of pain. It was also the most disgraceful form of execution. It was usually reserved for slaves or foreigners or, or the worst criminals. The only time a Roman citizen was ever crucified was for desertion from the army. And before every crucifixion, they would take that condemned person and, and take them out to be flogged or scourged. That scourging was intended to bring that person to a point just short of death. Obviously, caused a great deal of pain. It hurt. That whip had, had iron balls tied into each of the leather thongs a few inches from the end, and they had sharp bones tied near the ends as well. And those iron balls would, would as it, they slammed against the body, would cause deep bruising, and the thongs would cut into the skin. And then the bones would further that process of cutting as they grabbed and pulled the flesh away. After a few lashes, the skin would be cut through and the muscles would begin to be cut through, and there were incredible amounts of blood loss. And typically that condemned person would go into a state of shock. After the flogging, they'd be taken out to carry their own crossbar from the flogging area, which was inside the city, to the crucifixion area, which is outside the city. See, the crucifixions were always done outside the city because the process was so horrible and so disturbing to the citizens. Then they'd carry that crossbar. It'd be, their arms would be tied to it, and if they fell, they would likely just fall face first to the ground because they had no way of, of bracing themselves against it. Once they had reached the crucifixion area, that condemned person would be offered a drink of wine mixed with myrrh to act as a mild painkiller. We know that Jesus chose not to accept that because he, he was taking the full force of our sin. They'd be nailed to the cross and nails would be driven through the wrist to hold the support, the body weight. Their ankles would be nailed to the post. And once crucified, that person would hang there for sometimes hours, sometimes a few days, depending largely on how severe the scourging was. If nobody claimed the body, it would be left on the cross to be eaten by predatory animals. If someone claimed the body, the Roman soldier would pierce the chest with a sword or spear to make sure that individual was, in, in fact, dead before they were taken down. As horrible as all that was for Jesus, the most terrible part was not what he went through physically, but what he went through spiritually taking on the guilt of our sin, so gruesome a scene spiritually that for the first time in all eternity, there's a separation between the father and the son as the father turns away. Why? Why would he go through all that? So that he could fix us so that he could redeem us 
so that he could work the plan that the father had from before time began. Working the plan, and he's still working the plan today. There's a part of our redemption we're still waiting for. Ultimately, God is going to fix this all for good. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Whatever tough things we're going through now, whatever difficulties, whatever suffering is going on in this world now, this is nothing compared to how good it's going to be. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. There's something coming. It's going to happen. Right now, the, the curse of sin is still on this world. And creation itself, we're told here, is anxiously waiting to be redeemed. Anxiously waiting for the time when the sons of God will be revealed. What's it talking about? It's talking about us, those of us who know Jesus, those of us who've come into relationship with. It's waiting for the time when this world will see and recognize that we are, in fact, the sons of God. It'll be revealed to them. And when that happens, creation that has been groaning, that's been struggling, as beautiful as creation is out there, there's something not quite right, isn't there? It's still a struggle that goes on in this world. And creation itself is waiting for that time when the plan will be worked and, it will be, and everything will be fixed until then it's groaning, but it's waiting for the day when we are going to be revealed as his children. And not only this, Paul says, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, as good as it is to know God in this life, and it's incredibly good, as good as it is to know him and to walk through life with him and to know our sins forgiven and to know that one day when this life is over, we'll spend eternity with him. As good as all that is, there's still something not quite right. There's still a struggle going on. There's still sin in our life. There's still you know, suffering in this world. We're waiting as well, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. That's going to happen the culmination of our redemption, the final step in our adoption as God's children. And everything at that moment will be fixed. Revelation describes it this way, Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. 
And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. This is something you can count on. This is going to happen. There's going to be a time when the, at the culmination of our redemption, when, we, when that final step of our adoption is done, when God will wipe every tear from our eyes and there'll no longer be any death, all the suffering and the struggle. And no, can you imagine no longer any death? I mean, we've all lost people we love. That struggle will no longer be there. That emptiness, that loss will never happen again. There'll no longer be mourning. There'll be no crying. There'll be no pain. All of that is over. At that point that he, where he redeems us finally and redeems creation. Revelation 22 says there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have the need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. Won't that be something? And they will reign forever and ever. This world can mock us with whatever, however they want to do it. They can mock him, however, but the day is coming. But our redemption will be complete. And that's going to be some awesome day. But for those who don't know him, either because they've rejected him outright or because maybe they've rejected him, maybe sort of unknowingly, by placing their faith not fully in him, but relying instead on, 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 on what they've accomplished, how good they can be. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 7. He said, on that day, many will say to me, on that day when they stand before God, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. God, we did all kinds of good stuff. I did my best, God. You know what? I'm convinced if I sat down with every one of us, every one of you here in the room, and we just sat down and had a one-on-one conversation, there'd be a number of people in here that if I ask you, do you know you're going to heaven if you die? And you'd, you'd tell me, well, I, I think so. I believe I will. And if I said, why do you think you will? Then there'll be a number of you tell me, well, I, I've done my best. I've done my best. Do you understand that the message of God's word is Our best is never good enough. That we're talking about an absolutely holy God. And he requires holiness to be in his presence. 
And the only way that can possibly come is through a full, complete trusting only in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross because there is nothing good in us that can gain us any kind of credit before God. Tragically, on that day, there will be, I'm convinced, millions of people who will find out that no amount of good was good enough. That actually relying on being good enough costs them the opportunity to completely trust in Jesus because they were relying at least partially on themselves. According to Scripture, they will be condemned to an eternity separated from God and suffering as a result of God's justice. I know it's the prayer of every believer here, everyone who's come to a point of relationship with Christ. It's the prayer of every one of us here that if you haven't taken that step of faith to rely fully on him and on nothing else, it's our prayer that you take that step today. Whatever has been holding you back, if you've just, you know, if you're just sitting here going, okay, yeah, Tim, if I had that conversation with you, yeah, that would, be, that would have been my answer, that I'm doing my best, I'm trying, you know. But now I, I'm hearing it again, and I, maybe you've heard it a hundred times, but maybe now it's just hitting you really in your understanding for the first time fully that that's not the right answer. There's only one factor that can redeem us and it has nothing to do with us we can't fix us only Jesus can fix us and if I'm relying on anything else if if there's any portion of my my trust in something else that I'm going to church or I'm getting baptized or I'm a good dad or a good husband or a good wife or a good mom or you know, I'm paying my bills, I'm doing everything I can, I go to work regularly, you know, whatever it is, anything else, if I'm relying on anything, if any of that is what I'm counting on to, to, to somehow make me right before God, then, then it fails. And if, you, if you're realizing, okay, that's it. I understand that. I want to, to trust Christ. I want to know what it is to know him and to walk with him through life and to know my sins are forgiven and to know that if my life ended where I'd spend eternity, I'm ready to take that step. Then what I really want to ask you to do is this. We're going to close in prayer in just a minute. And when we do, after the service is dismissed, there's a room right over here. Right over here, it's called room, we call it room one, through those double doors. There'll be pastors there. We want to talk to you you, about how you can know that. It would be a privilege for us to talk to you about that. Please, don't walk out of here because, you know, you've got something else that's that's, that's taking up your time for the day or anything else. Just come. This is the most important decision you can ever make in your life. God has had a plan from the beginning of time and before to redeem his people. He wants you to know him. He's making you an offer today. Eternity with him.
are apart from him. Sins forgiven are guilty before him. Make that decision today. Come talk to us, please. God's redeeming his people. If you're a follower of Christ, there's, no, there's great news for us. The reason we celebrate this Christmas and his coming is because that was all part of the plan to fix us. What a great God we serve. Would you stand with me, please? We'll pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy that's offered to us. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't taken that step of faith, placed their full faith, their full reliance on you, God, they take that step today. Open their heart, their mind, anything that's holding them back, Father, I pray that you'd remove them, that from them. They take that step. And God, I pray for us as believers, those of us who know you and, and have already taken that step, and you, you're redeeming us, and God, we're thankful for that, and we're just excited to know that we can serve you in this world. God, help us to, 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 to represent you well here. Until that day when we stand in your presence and, 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 and everything is made new. Thank you, God, for your power, your purpose, your provisions for us. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. We'll look forward to seeing you.